we have the great joy of celebrating the ordination of Nick Kidwell. <clears throat> and that ordination will happen immediately following the sermon uh, at the latter part of our service. Nick will be ordained as a church planter and will be sent out this fall to lead Valley Creek Church in Malvern. And it makes this day a very happy day for us as we celebrate the grace of God in Nick's life. The sermon today, and I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, our sermon today is on verses 10 and 11, which are really two verses that summarize the message of 1 Peter, this book that we have been studying together. Next week is also a special Sunday. Our friend C.J. Mahaney will be with us. C.J. is one of the founders of our denomination. He is a father in the faith to me. He serves the Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's going to be preaching from 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. So we're jumping forward to verses 10 and 11, and then next week we'll be back in verses 8 and 9. And then the following week after that, we'll look at the final greetings in verses 12 through 14. And then the following week after that, when we're into June, we will jump into a series on the Ten Commandments that will last through the summer that we are excited about and preparing for. First Peter 5, even though we're looking at these two verses, I want to read the first 11 verses of this chapter, and I'd like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy and authoritative Word. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Many of the best-selling books of our time are self-help books, which are books that uh, provide advice and routines, uh, practices, life hacks, Uh, to help us succeed. Some self-help books are better than others. Not all of them are bad. And yet it's not uncommon to find a self-help book with deeply flawed counsel. Uh, How self-love is the key to unlocking your greatness. How to heal yourself when no one else can. This particular genre of writing has in fact taken off in recent decades and has become a billion dollar industry. Essentially, you have a problem and the way to solve that problem is to buy the book that I have written. And I know that's a bit cynical, but the authors, I think, are recognizing something is true. They're recognizing we have a problem. They're recognizing that we do indeed fall short of what we ought to be. And they're wondering uh, how we can make progress, how we can remain steadfast, how we can improve. Uh, We need help, they know. However, it is interesting, more recently there have been some questioning the effectiveness of self-help books. Even professional psychologists are observing that that many self-help resources appear to have the opposite effect. Think of all of the failed self-improvement efforts among human beings. What, What these popular resources, books and articles, tend to have in common is the message, here is what you need to do. Here is how you can cultivate positive thinking. Here's what you need to do to be more organized. Here's what you need to do to be happier and so on. The problem, friends, is this, that self-help often comes with an overemphasis on self-reliance. How do we remain steadfast? How do we endure suffering? How do we grow in godliness? How do we learn to love and forgive, especially in hard places? How do we live with the joy of hope? The Christian is someone who has been taught by God that our help does not come from within, from ourselves. Our help does not come from discovering ourselves or believing in ourselves. Our help comes from the Lord. If we look to ourselves, we can find a lot of problems, but we cannot find any solutions. At the end of the day, self-help is an oxymoron. We cannot help ourselves. We need help from the outside. The problem 1 Peter is addressing is this need to stand firm, the difficulty of maintaining faith and joy in a world of suffering, 
And this is deeply relevant for Nick Kidwell as he officially steps into pastoral ministry and stands in need of wisdom and strength. It's relevant for all those who will be participating in the planting of Valley Creek Church this fall. And it's relevant for each one of us. How do we navigate life as a people in exile who will inevitably face suffering, mistreatment, marginalization, difficult relationships, demonic attacks, our own weaknesses and sin? How do we navigate life in light of all of that reality? The answer is not found in what we must do, but in the promise of what God will do. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the message of what God will do. God himself is your help. God himself will strengthen you in his grace. God himself will not fail you. And so the whole of the Christian life is spent looking to God as the one who is our help and pondering anew what the Almighty can do in the lives of his people. Dan Doriani commenting on verse 10 says, Peter closes his epistle with the assurance that the outcome of our life rests more on God's power and grace than on our labors. What does the outcome of our lives depend on? What does it rest on? What does it hang on? Not at the end of the day, our labors and our efforts, but on God and his grace and his faithfulness. Let's look more closely at verses 10 and 11 here. And I want to ask several questions that this passage answers. First, question number one, what is our present reality? After you have suffered a little while, our present reality is that we are suffering for a little while. This is the same way that suffering and trials are described at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 verse 6 with an emphasis falling on the limited duration of all our suffering. It says there in chapter 1 verse 6, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. After you have suffered a little while. A little while is a reminder that there is an expiration date on all of our trials. A little while refers to our earthly sojourn, life in this fallen world. And this phrase is a reminder that your sickness will last but a little while. Loss will last but a little while. Tears will last but a little while. And God wants us to view all of our present suffering in its proper perspective that we would understand not only the inevitability of suffering, but also the relative brevity of our suffering in light of eternity. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is revealed. Suffering now for a little while as we await the revelation of the glory of our God and Savior. Peter describes himself in chapter 5 verse 1 as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Suffering is followed by glory. The humble will be exalted. The meek will inherit the earth. Every sorrow will turn to rejoicing. Every affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Christian, God will not fail you. He is going to see you through. What's our present reality? Suffering. Question two, who is our help? After you have suffered a little while, here it is, the God of all grace. The God of, who is our help? The God of all grace. Friends, I thank God that he is not the God of some grace. He is not the God of a little grace. He is not the God of meager grace. All grace means that there is grace in Jesus Christ for every need and every situation. Our suffering is great, but his grace is greater. Do you believe that today? That he is the God of all grace and that in him there is strengthening grace for the weak. There is forgiving grace for the sinful. There is empowering grace for growth in godliness. There is sustaining grace for the weary. He is the God of all grace. And friends, his grace is exactly what we need. And because it is grace, he gives it to the undeserving on the basis of his gracious character and the finished work of Christ. Not because we've merited it, not because we have earned it, not through our own striving, but because he is the God of all grace. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Isaiah 30 says, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. After you have suffered a little while, there is one who will act, the God of all grace. Question three, what has God done? After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So the God of all grace has done something for you, and that is he has called you in the past. That means he's brought you out of the world. He has loved you and rescued you. You are called in Christ. Called what? To his eternal glory. Means that you have been given the gift of eternal life in the presence of God forever. All things are yours. Called you to his eternal glory in Christ is the common New Testament language for the doctrine and reality of our union with Christ, the one who has been given for our salvation. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's already done that. The call has already happened. It's what God has done. And this is the reason the Christian declares, blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, the God of all grace, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, the eternal glory to which you have been called, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Which leads to question number four, what will God do? What will this great and glorious God of grace who has called us to his eternal glory do in the future? He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Who will do it? He will himself. Someone said that that one word himself is one of the most precious words in all of scripture. God is not delegating this work. He's not passing off this task. This work will not depend on ourselves, nor does it depend on the people of God or his angels, but upon God himself who is personally and intimately involved in all circumstances in our lives and has promised that he will bring about this glorious outcome either in this life or the next. He will himself. This is his promised activity. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four words describing God's promised activity, all essentially overlapping and making the same point. And we should not think of these actions as only taking place after the time of suffering is completely over. These realities certainly will happen fully when Christ returns, but we experience them in the present. We can testify to the reality of His grace as we are strengthened and made secure by the grace of God. This truth of God's activity is intended to strengthen us here and now in the midst of every fiery trial we face. This is what gives courage. This is what gives confidence. Here is what the power of God's grace is doing, Christian, and will do for you. He will restore meaning he will mend, he will heal, he will put things right, he will complete his work, he will restore, and he will confirm. He will, he will make you to stand up. He will protect you. He will vindicate you. And this God of grace will strengthen you. He will remove fear. He will remove anxiety and unbelief. He gives power to the weak. He will enable you to endure to the end. The God of grace will strengthen you and he will establish. He will secure you. He will settle you. He will, he will make you grounded. In Christ, you will be unmoved. You will not be shaken. The God of grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The Christian lives every day of our lives in the confidence of that promise. For the original recipients that Peter was writing to, this would make all of the difference in their daily lives. And it makes all the difference for us as well. You remember they're being opposed. They are being 
mistreated. And, and Peter has throughout this letter been urging a gracious, kind, humble, rather weak-looking response from the people of God. Be subject to the government. Honor the emperor. Respectfully and joyfully endure unjust suffering. Meet reviling with blessing. Speak with gentleness and respect. We say, Peter, you are killing me. It doesn't work. We're just supposed to sit back and welcome suffering and mistreatment? And Peter says, no, not exactly. You are to actively entrust your soul to God and you are to let the hope of the gospel burn so bright in your life as you rejoice in the promise of what God will do. That's the Christian posture in this world. John Piper says that this passage means this. All wrongs against us will be set right. All patience under mockery will be vindicated. All shame in this world will be taken away and replaced with honor. All pain will be removed and all losses restored. All brokenness will be mended. All humiliation will be exchanged for garments of glory. All slander will be revealed as false before the whole world. All anonymity in quiet faithfulness will be replaced with global fame among the millions of the redeemed. This is what God will do. And he intends this promise to strengthen and sustain us through every trial. The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter himself had throughout his life experienced this restoring and strengthening grace of God. The Apostle Paul experienced it as well. You remember in 2 Timothy 4, Paul reached the end of his life. And in 2 Timothy, he's writing from prison. Demas had deserted him. Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm. Paul says that at his first trial... No one came to stand by him. Everyone deserted him. And what does he say? 2 Timothy 4, verses 17 and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Who was there? Was, was Paul alone? Was he abandoned? No. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So, he testifies, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. What did he experience? God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christian, do not fear. Speak faith to your soul today. The Lord will stand by you. The Lord will strengthen you. 
The Lord will rescue you and he will bring you safely home to the glory of his eternal praise. Thousands upon thousands of saints have known this to be true. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so and testify to the faithfulness of our God. This room is filled with stories of experiences of the grace of God that has restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. One example that comes to mind is from Pastor Ray Ortland. And I wanted to share this with you. I was torn between what illustrations and stories to share, but wanted to share with you from the life of, of Ray Ortland. He walked through one of the most difficult times he says he has ever known in 2007. What Ray describes as a catastrophic disaster of a year for him and his wife, Janie. I wonder if any of you are having a catastrophic disaster of a year. There were accusations, there was loss, there was heartbreak. And at that time, Ray tells the story of how he and Janie met with David Pallison and his wife. And David Pallison said to them, Ray and Janie, you are suffering and it isn't going to get better anytime soon. But he said, here's an idea. Ask the Lord for a verse of scripture, a promise in the Bible to help you get through this. And he said, when that verse jumps off the page and into your heart, make it the theme of your whole life while you slog your way forward. However dark the night Time sky may be, you can always look up at that North Star promise, get your bearings again, and keep going. But he said, wallpaper your reality with the word of God. And so, the Ortlands started to ask God to personalize to them a biblical encouragement of his own choosing. And one day, Janie was reading 1 Peter 5 and came to verse 10, and they said, that's it. And they seized this verse, they memorized it, they discussed it, they prayed over it, they read it in the Greek text. Janie wrote it out on three by five cards and taped them inside kitchen cupboards so that every time she goes to get a plate or a glass, there's First Peter 5.10. Ray wrote it out and stuck it to the visor of his truck so that at a red light he could look up, be strengthened by First Peter 5 verse 10. They never let the verse out of sight. And they said, in ways that they could not have dreamed or imagined, God has proved faithful to his promise. And they testify of how to this day, whenever Ray and Janie experience some restoring, confirming, strengthening, or establishing mercy, it's this moment where they look to each other and say, 1 Peter 5.10. This is God doing what he has promised to do. And Ray says that they have come to know at a deep and personal level that when we have nothing to offer but our sorrow and need, God himself truly is the God of all grace who restores and confirms and strengthens and establishes us. I can't help but to think that some of you need to wallpaper that reality that reality to your life in this particular verse. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Cling to this promise. Rest in his faithfulness. This is what the God of all grace will do for you. One more question, and that is how should we respond? Verse 11 is a doxology. It is a word of praise 
And it focuses very specifically on the power and sovereignty of God, praising him for his rule and his reign over a kingdom that stands forever. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. To God be dominion. If one of the Christians Peter was first addressing was to walk through their city, the city of Pontus or Galatia or Bithynia, and ask someone who has dominion, they would respond by saying Rome. Rome was the great empire that stood against Christianity and the church mistreating Christians and desiring to snuff out this movement entirely. What Rome didn't realize is the power and dominion that they were up against. The greater power and dominion. It is the power of the resurrected and reigning King Jesus. And so Peter writing very aware of Roman dominion and the Christians who were tempted to fear the situation declares that the dominion belongs to who? To God alone. And the power of Rome and every nation is paltry and fleeting compared to the eternal dominion of our God whose purposes will never be thwarted. The promise of the certainty of God's grace leads us to doxology. It leads us to worship. It leads us to adoration. Praise the one who rules over all things. Praise the one whose promises are yes and amen. Praise the one who is the God of all grace, the one whom we have experienced personally to be the God of all grace, who will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish his people. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.